Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Are you thankful for the blood of Jesus this morning? Why don't you pray with me as we celebrate the fact that though we deserve death, the King of glory came and conquered it for us. God in heaven, we give you praise that you fulfilled your promise through your Son, that your Son got to earth on the rescue mission that you promised he would complete. And God, though we we are inadequate and insufficient and guilty. God, you have cleansed us. You have made washing and atonement available through the blood of Jesus. Through his, through his sacrificial death, we can find life. And if there's anyone here today that, that doesn't yet embrace that message and that story as their own story, God, and, and their own reality, I pray today, God, that, that you would continue your work in our church family, that you would continue to grow it by bringing men and women to, to saving faith in the Lord, living Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Esther chapter 2. <clears throat> Esther chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this morning, and we'll read verses 1 through 20, sort of in sections as we progress through the sermon. We, we saw last week, if you weren't able to be with us, we saw in chapter 1 uh, a series of parties. You remember there were three feasts, or three parties in the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign, culminating with the party that Queen Vashti was having, and she refused to leave her party and come to the king. And, and though Ahasuerus presumed he was God, his queen rejected him, his pride was wounded, Vashti was dismissed as queen, and an edict was published throughout the entire Persian Empire, all 127 provinces, that every man should be master in his own house and that his language would be the language spoken in the house. When chapter 2 opens, about three years have passed. We know that that is the case because Esther will rise to become the queen in the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign. So enough time has passed for the edict of chapter 1 to be translated and delivered to every home in the kingdom. Meanwhile, we know this from other sources outside the Bible, Herodotus, a, a historian, tells us that Ahasuerus launched a failed military campaign against Greece. He tried to expand the empire and overtake Greece. He assembled the largest known army in the history of the world to that point, and he failed. So when we turn the page to verse 1 of chapter 2, the king's pride is wounded, and he remembers his queen Vashti. He wants to restore his pride, but as we will see, God, who is not even named in the story, is nevertheless writing this story. God is king. Vashti's dismissal makes way for the rise of Esther to be the new queen and eventually sets the stage for God to use her to save his people in an amazing way. So chapter 2, if you'll look at verse 1 with me, opens with these words, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, 
he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Verse 1 is a remarkable verse. It's almost as though he had forgotten his queen and then remembered that he had a queen and looks around and says, I'm a king with no queen. What happened to my queen? King of an empire this big needs to have a queen and I had a queen and where'd she go? And then he says he remembered what had been decreed against her as though he had no hand in that decree. It's like, uh, what happened? Who took my queen? So, so in verse 1, there's this, this, like this hint of regret in his thinking, but yet there's no resolve to make it right. All he knows is, I'm a king without a queen, and that's not right. So then we, we get to verses 2 through 4, and here's what we read in verses 2 through 4. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. What we see in verses 1 through 4 is this reality. Worldly powers will reject personal responsibility and multiply pain to preserve their pride and maximize their pleasure. Do you realize that's the world we live in? That the world will reject its own responsibility and in the process multiply pain and in order to preserve their pride and maximize their pleasure. That's what we see going on in King Ahasuerus' life. Verse 1 gives us a glimmer of hope that maybe he's going to evaluate his pride, that maybe he's going to ask some of the big questions of life, like, how did I end up being a king without a queen? Why am I king at all? What happens when I die? Why do I keep passing irrevocable laws that leave me in a bind? Why do I do these things? But rather than help the king process this situation in a way that would help him evaluate his own heart and pride, instead, for the king's advisors, their only question is this, how can we get you a queen that's going to make you forget Vashti and get on with your life? You see, church, when when decisions, when our decisions lead to disappointment, we can be a lot like this king, can't we? We want to pass the buck. How did this happen to me? The, the world and our pride and even our friends, if we don't have very good friends, can lead us to seek diversions to the disappointment that we face in life rather than to dive deep into our own hearts and examine what is motiv- motivating us and how we got there in the first place. Are you all understanding this morning? Is that making sense? Anybody see King Ahasuerus in your own life sometimes? The king's advisors don't suggest any soul-searching, just a way to move on, a way to bring Vashti back, or a way to, they don't suggest a way to prevent future foolish decisions, or a way to bring Vashti back. Instead, they suggest an empire-wide search to look for a new queen. The next queen would be a lot like Vashti, young and exceptionally attractive. She would be unmarried, and above all, she would, verse 4, not be like Vashti, she would please the king. The search was on for what one commentator calls the ultimate anti-Vashti. 
They were looking for a woman who would do whatever the king wanted, no matter what he required. And to find such a queen, officers would be sent into all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa. We can just read these words and just read rapidly through the story and miss the horror of this statement. Let the repetition of the words all fall heavily on your ears and your heart this morning. On, in all the provinces, all the beautiful young virgins, all the young unmarried women of the kingdom would be brought to the king. Throughout the kingdom, the, the hopes of eligible bachelors would be dashed in a moment. Parents would weep as their daughters were abducted for the king's pleasure. Duguid writes this, since the whole purpose for existence in Persia was to serve the empire. Listen to this, the empire didn't care whether parents had any other plans for their daughter. And by the way, they didn't care if you had plans for your son either. They would come and take your son and make him a eunuch and make him serve in the king's harem. You say, well that's back then, that's, that's kingdoms of a bygone era. Let me tell you church, kingdoms still function in the same way to this day. There are kingdoms that tell you you can only have one child and they want to have a son and so they abort daughter after daughter after daughter. There are kingdoms like our own country where people are incentivized to take the lives of their own children. There are kingdoms like our own country as we've seen in recent years where officials, governing officials, men and women of wealth and power at the highest ranks of government exploit children with no consequence. Governments to this very day, many of them do not exist to protect and preserve life, but only to gratify themselves, even if it means to cheapen, abuse, and exploit life for the pleasure and the advantage of the ruling and bureaucratic classes. And that's in our country, and it's all over the world. What we read about in Esther chapter 2 is happening today. But it isn't just the work of official human governments. This is ultimately the work of the enemy. The work of the evil one. The work of Satan. The enemy is, to this very day, he's sending out his officials into the world trying to carry off children every single day. And let me tell you the names of his officials. The names of the enemy's officials this day are Snapchat and Instagram. Twitter and TikTok. The enemy has announced a competition in the kingdom of the world to seize as many daughters and sons as he can before they even get a start at life. And the winner of this competition is the one who will please the world. And in the process, they will lose their own souls. But parents are tired. They're worn out. They're exhausted by Kingdoms that push us to work long hours and pay exorbitant taxes, leaving little time for parenting. We don't want society to leave our kids behind or our kids to be too backward or too socially awkward or for our kids to think that we are mean, overbearing overbearing parents and grandparents. So too often, church, we are compromising. We're placing a device in their hands far too early and giving them a responsibility that they are not ready 
for and we just hope for the best and we check out because we're tired. But when it comes to parenting, hoping for the best in a wicked world that is dead set against our children and wants to pervert their lives and ruin their souls in a world that is anti-Christ, hoping for the best is not a strategy. It is a recipe for disaster. And I fear, church, that we are underestimating the enemy and we are thinking far too highly of this world that we live in. We send them off to schools. We send them off from our homes. We send them off to everything they do and we don't evaluate what they're hearing and what they're learning and what they're processing and what they're seeing. And then we wake up and they're 18 and they're far from God and far from the church and we wonder what happened. I suspect that many parents in Susa and across the kingdom were weeping as their daughter was taken. But I wonder how many parents are weeping as the systems of this world are taking our children right under our noses and we don't even care or notice. You see, I imagine there in Susa that there were many parents who didn't weep. Rather than weep, they were probably relieved. One less mouth to feed with a guarantee that at least one of their children would always have a meal before them. Far too often, church, parents are sacrificing for the food of this world rather than to introduce their children to the bread of life. They're sacrificing either for actual food or for the food of fame or sports success or comfort or convenience or acceptance among their peers and they end up sacrificing their own children on the altar of fortune or fame or other worldly success. And if you can't see the moment we're in in our culture, in our country, and that it's a time for standing up for Christ and our kids, God help us. Parents who know the King of Kings need to see worldly powers for what they are, and they've got to see what our kids are up against. The powers of our own world have announced a competition, and like the competition in this Persian Empire, it is a competition that we do not want our children to win. As Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Mark 8, 36. And those who know the true king, why would we want to win the world's contests? Make no mistake about it, church. God's people are being asked to play the game. Let's keep reading. Beginning in verse 5. 5 through 7 is what we'll consider next. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter." I want to show you from verses 5 through 7 a simple truth. In a world far from God, we don't have to neglect opportunities to love like God. We live in a world that is dead set against the people of God. 
It is set against Christ and His kingdom. And yet, the people of God, living like God, are still making a difference in God's world. In these verses, Mordecai and Esther, both Jews, are thrust onto the story's stage. Mordecai is a Jew, but his name is not Jewish. It's Mordecai, which includes the name of a Babylonian god, Marduk. So he's a Jew, he's a child of God, but he's a long way from Jerusalem and so deeply enmeshed in Persian culture that he has a Persian name for a Persian god. Mordecai is in exile, we learn in verse 6. If we read the the verse very literally, a literal translation from the Hebrew, here's what verse 6 says about his ancestor. His ancestor was taken into exile from Jerusalem with the exiles who were taken into exile with Jeconah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took into exile. Four times in one verse, the word exile is shown in the text. An exile is someone who's living outside of their native country. In this case, Mordecai is living outside of Jerusalem, outside the temple. He is without a Davidic king. He's living under foreign rule as all of God's people were at that time. Did you know in this present world that if you belong to King Jesus, that you're in exile? This is what we're called throughout the New Testament. Strangers, aliens, exiles. Paul says we are citizens of heaven. Hebrews tells us we await a better country, a heavenly one. Revelation tells us the city of God, the New Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven when Jesus returns. Right now, if you... If you haven't noticed, we live in a pretty messed up world. It's a world for believers that should not feel like home. But perhaps for some of us, it feels more like home than it should. Maybe we've spent a little too much time and energy and effort and emotional intensity trying to make this world our home and forgetting that we belong to the King of Kings who's bringing down the home that will never fail and never end. Perhaps we've become compromised in our faithfulness to God, so distant from the gospel and His plans and His purposes to glorify His Son that it's like we have two identities. At home, we're a Christian, but in the world, people only know us by our given name, like Mordecai. You see, the failure of Mordecai's ancestors to return to Jerusalem when they had a chance was having a direct impact on his life. He's several generations down the line, and his family had a chance to go back. They had a chance to go back. They had a chance to go back. But by the time he's there in Susa, nobody else went back, so why would I go back? I'll just stay here, and I'll hang on to a little bit of Judaism in my home, but in the world, I'll just be Mordecai. I'll blend right in with the culture. Disobedience in the up the chain of his family tree led him to live far from Jerusalem in Susa, near the center of power in the Persian Empire. Did you know, church, it is often the case that the sins of other people impact us? Divorce, compromise, adultery, these sins have generation after generational impact. But the reality is, we don't have to be defined by the sins of our forefathers. We often are, but we don't have to be. Mordecai, even though he's far from the city of God, even though he's a fourth generation exile, Mordecai does not give up. Instead, he does what he can. 
Do you see that in the text? He becomes a foster father. He becomes a foster father for his Jewish cousin Hadassah. Her Persian name is Esther, which means star. So here's another Jew in the text that has two names. Her Jewish name is Hadassah. Her Persian name is Esther. And when she's, when she's orphaned, Mordecai does what he can. He takes her into his home and cares for her. And he must have done a good job of it. Look at verse 7. She had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And in the ancient world, a beautiful figure didn't mean that you were anorexic. It meant that you were filled out. It meant that you ate well. So she was a full-figured, beautiful woman. The, the history of God's people and the fulfillment of His promises turns on this one adoption. I want you to think about this. Eventually, Esther is going to become queen and risk her life to save the Jews which means that Mordecai's sacrifice of time and financial investment in Esther ultimately becomes a part of bringing Jesus to the world. Here in a kingdom that acts like there is no king of kings, we find a glimmer of hope. In the middle of a dark and dangerous and perverted world, God is still at work. Esther's unlikely rise to be queen begins with the sacrifice and generosity of adoption. So I want to challenge you, church, maybe God would lead you to adopt. You say, well, I've already got two. Great. How about three or four? Maybe God would lead you to foster. Think about what God does through this one adoption. He changes the world through this one adoption. The Jews, as we'll find out in chapter 3, are headed for extinction. They're going to be obliterated from the planet. And God's Son is supposed to come through the Hebrew people. And so God uses this flicker of hope, this little one instance of obedience to change world history and get us to his son that we can, so that we can have saving faith and life everlasting through Christ. Imagine what God could do through an adoption. He could change generations. He could touch hearts and people for generations for the glory of Christ through a Christian home that would dare to adopt. But for now in the story other than this adoption, everything seems pretty dark. When the king's officials came to get Esther, they didn't have far to go. They just needed to go right there in Susa. She lived in Susa, and the officials had probably already been eyeing her. The Hebrew orphan rescued by her Hebrew cousin was abducted by a Persian king. And the question we have before us is, how would Esther and Mordecai respond? Let's take a look at the remainder, or almost the remainder of chapter 2. We'll read down through verse 20. Verse 8 through verse 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women. 
since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young women went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. You say, what in the world can I get out of those 12 verses? That's a great question. Here's what I want to show you. There's a lot in there, but I just want you to take home this one point, okay? When God's people lack courage and choose compromise, God's plan is not defeated and His people are not discarded. Are you encouraged to know that today? Anybody ever compromised on, on your faith in Christ? Anybody ever sold Jesus out? Aren't you glad to know his plan is still in, in effect? Jesus is still king, he's still savior, and he'll still use you for his glory. You see, this section of this story, verse, tw- verse 10 and verse 20, say basically the same thing. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Verse 20 adds that Esther is obeying Mordecai just like she had since he had adopted her. You see, Mordecai is trying to protect Esther, but God doesn't need us to deny our identity in him in order to be protected. In verse 11, we see that he checks on her every single day. In verse 8 of chapter 3, we'll discover that some people are skeptical of the Jews because their laws are different from those of every other people, and they don't keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. This is Haman encouraging the king to just exterminate all the Jewish people in the kingdom. So it may have seemed wise to Esther and to Mordecai to conceal her identity, but concealing our identity in Christ often leads us to compromise. Have you found that in your own life? 
you get around a group of people and they deny Jesus, they make fun of Jesus, they mock Jesus. So I'm just not going to identify with Jesus right now. Next thing you know, you're doing what the, what the group does. So it begins with denying our identity in Christ or not advertising our identity in Christ. And the next thing you know, we're compromising with the world. Which is pretty much what Esther does. She compromises just about every conviction possible. Because once she is taken into the king's palace, she's going to be given the king's food, not kosher food. And she's going to be asked to marry, not a Hebrew man, but a Persian king. She had three options when she was taken to the king. She could have acted like Daniel. You remember what Daniel did? He was also in exile. The king says, we're going to give you the king's food. And he's like, no thanks. I'm going to eat my diet. You're going to bow down to a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. No thanks, I'll die if I have to. She could have acted like Daniel and refused the whole process on principle. Or secondly, she could have gone with the flow and possibly, possibly become the queen, but much more likely become, become one of the many women who went to the king one time and then ended up in this second harem forever, never to be seen again. Or thirdly, she could have done everything possible to become the queen. Esther chose door number three. When she arrived in the king's palace, she pleased Haggai, who had charge of the women. And verse 9 tells us that she won his favor. This is not passive language. In other words, Esther was actively trying to become the queen. Duguid says it like this, Esther at this point is certainly not a Daniel. She is in the world and of the world fully complying with the empire's outrageous demands with the goal of winning the love of an unworthy husband. The people of God were supposed to marry within the family of God. She was trying to be the queen of Persia. And Haggai loves it. He's eating it up. Do you see what he does? He's like, get this lady her food quickly. Let's, let's keep her healthy. And then he's like, Let's get her into the beauty school as quickly as possible. The latest products for Mary Kay for Esther. And by the way, let's go ahead and treat her like a queen. She needs attendance. She's going to get seven young women to attend to her into the ha- in the harem. He's already assuming she's going to be queen. He's like, I like this lady. She's going to be the queen. She's doing whatever I want her to do. She will certainly please the king. Can you imagine being the rep for Mary Kay that had the account in Susa? I mean, she was driving that pink Cadillac around. All the women from the empire, giving them six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and treatments. And then in verse, verse 15, it was Esther's turn to go into the king. When her turn was up, she would likely be there just for a night, sent to that second harem, never to be seen from again unless the king requested her by name. Can you think about all the women who were called up and sent away, never to be heard from again? Church, that's a picture of what the world will do to you. The world will promise you a great time. It's going to be wonderful. It's just a little hit. It's just a one-night stand. It's just a fling. It's just an instance in the bar. I'm just going to do it this one time, and it will consign you to the harem, never to be called from again. Or maybe it will call your name another time, and you'll take another hit, thinking next time the world's going to love me. Next time the world's going to embrace me. Next time the world's going to give me a real identity and satisfy the longing of my heart. And when the world's done with you, it sends you back to the harem, 
never to call your name again. That is what the world does to people. But we serve a different king. We serve a king when he calls us by name. He doesn't call us because we're beautiful. He doesn't call us because we've done anything to please him. He just calls us in grace and makes us his own and makes us beautiful in his sight regardless of where we've been or what we've done. And he keeps us. He doesn't throw us away and discard us. You can feel the pain in this moment in the description of Esther in verse 15. She is the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter. Twice in one verse, she is called someone else's daughter. Not to mention, she's also a daughter of the true king. She's three times a daughter. But in this moment, Esther does not resist. She does not call upon the king of kings. Instead, when it is her turn, she follows the advice of Haggai on what would please the king and takes nothing more than what he suggested. She is living all in for the pleasure of the wrong king. Her identity is concealed and her convictions are compromised, but God is still at work. Aren't you glad to know that even in those seasons where you compromised and you failed, that God was still working? For 10 years, I resisted the call of God on my life to serve as a pastor. I remember I was 15 years old. I was sitting in the pew, and as clear as a bell, God was like, I want you to serve in the local church. And I had been a pastor's son. And I had seen the pain and the heartache of a pastor's family. I had seen the difficulty and the long days and the call out to the hospital at 2.30. I had seen the life, and I told God in that moment, God, I'll do anything you want me to do as long as it has nothing to do with your local church. He's laughing. And I want to tell you, those were 10 years of a barren wasteland spiritually in my life, but God is still redeeming those years. There's things that I learned, even in spite of my knuckleheaded disobedience, that I'm able to use every day in serving Him now. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, God can, God can still use you. As Dowden writes, the girl who was adopted became the girl who was abducted and then became the girl who advanced in the harem ultimately to be adorned with a crown and announced as a queen in a feast given just for her. And to top it all off, the king puts a hold on taxes throughout the provinces and he gives gifts just like he gave wine in chapter 1, according to his royal bounty. Everything is right in the king's world. It seems again that he is God, that he's king over the nations. And all this happens in the tenth month of the seventh year of his reign. Those numbers 10 and 7, biblically, are numbers of perfection or completion. His whole world seems great. There's just one little hiccup. Esther is a Jew. And deep down, she knows that her king is not the king. The king doesn't know that she's a Jew, and the Jews don't yet know that they're going to need her, but God knows everything, and he knows exactly what he's doing, even when we don't have a clue and are living as though he's not there. God's still working. Soon Mordecai will see that God had been working all along, despite their cowardice and compromise, to open a door for Esther to exercise great faith in the true king. Aren't you glad to know that no matter who you wanted to win the last presidential election, that God was not surprised and he's still working? 
Aren't you glad to know that whatever wars or terrors or earthquakes or tsunamis come, whatever disaster or calamity comes, God is still working and He's still using His church to lead people to the Savior. Broken, hypocritical people just like us who recognize we have nothing to bring, but we have Jesus as our King, He still uses us. This queen who concealed her identity and compromised her faith is going to get another opportunity to declare who she is. And when she does, she will. She'll put it all on the line to get us to, sa- to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that, dear brothers, is great news for us. Because God is not surprised or defeated by your failures. As Dowden writes, though we may lack courage at times and choose to compromise with the world, it does not mean that God is done with us. Our disobedience cannot override God's plan to glorify His Son and rescue sinners who trust in Him. Furthermore, our past failures do not disqualify us from living for God in the future. Some of you today just need to decide, today's the day I'm a Christian and I'm not looking back. Today's the day I identify with Christ and I live with Christ no matter what it costs me. Though it doesn't seem possible yet in Esther's life, God is working. The favor that she is winning in the eyes of all who see her, verse 16, will soon prove to be a favor that God is actually giving to her to be used to save His people when she identifies herself as a Jew so that the lives of Jews can be spared. Did you know that God can take even the seasons, our seasons of pain and cowardice and compromise, and turn them into opportunities to lead others to Jesus? Perhaps God today is saying to someone in this room or online that it is time to fully identify with Jesus. Maybe today is the day to reclaim your identity as a blood-washed, born-again child of the king. Maybe he's calling you to bold, courageous faith, to stop flirting with the world and submitting to its beauty treatments and to go all in for Jesus and let Jesus make you truly beautiful. You say, Pastor, but you don't know where I've been or what I've done, and you're right, I don't know, but I know where Esther went and I know pretty well what she did. And God used her to rescue his people and get us to Jesus. And if God can do that in Esther's life, he can do it in your life as well. Do you remember the Apostle Peter? The leading apostle. Jesus says, you're going to deny me. Oh, no, Lord, I would never deny you. Three times he denies him before the rooster crows. And Jesus raises from the dead and he goes to Peter and what does he say? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Get to work. Stop living in your denial. Stop living in the past. Stop living as though God is somehow defeated by your, your ignorance and your disobedience. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Feed my sheep. But God, I, I'm broken. You don't know what I've done. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Maybe today is the day that someone in this room or listening online needs to see the sovereign king of the universe has been working things out all along, moving you to exercise in this moment great sacrificial faith for the sake of your king and the good of all who will trust in him. Maybe it's in the area of generous giving. Did you know if you're a Christian, you're going to be a generous giver? 
You're not going to sit on the sidelines and withhold from the God who gave his all to you. Maybe it's in the area of your parenting. Maybe you were woken up in the first half of this sermon. It's like, i got to get invested in my kids' lives and stop it and cut it off and get them on the path to following and obeying and knowing and loving Jesus and knowing his word and memorizing scripture. And i got to do it stat. Maybe it is in your faithfulness to attend church, not just once a month, not just twice a month, but maybe you're going to be here every single week unless your child is sick or you're hemorrhaging or something. You're going to get here. Maybe, maybe you've been a faithful worship attender, but you've never gotten involved in a small group, and it's time to go to the next level. It's time to find a group of people when we come back on April the 11th that can hold you accountable in God's word, that can lift you up, that can pray for you, that can support you, that can challenge you to be on mission into your community and help you in that. Maybe it's taking a mission trip as soon as we're able to do that again. Maybe it's serving in children's ministry or youth ministry. We are going to need new volunteers as we come back COVID from COVID stronger than ever before. Maybe it's time to stop sacrificing ourselves for the beauty treatments of the world and start sacrificially pursuing Jesus wholeheartedly, who alone can truly make us beautiful from the inside out. Salvation comes and the sun is glorified when incognito Christians stop being hidden and dare to identify with Jesus Christ our King. Let me ask you, church, why wouldn't we identify with Jesus, the king? He's the better king. In this story, Esther conceals her identity to avoid likely death. In the Gospels, Jesus conceals his identity for a time to make sure that he dies exactly as he needs to to save us. In this story, Mordecai adopts Esther and does what he can to protect her. In Jesus, we are adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God and know that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. In this story, King Ahasuerus left the women he used imprisoned in shame, but Jesus comes to take away our shame forever. He doesn't just forgive us, he restores us and gives us peace with God. In this story, King Ahasuerus only welcomes the most beautiful woman to be his, but Jesus came to rescue those who were wretched, ugly, dirty sinners and make us clean. In this story, King Ahasuerus blesses his citizens with a tax break only after he takes from them for years and gets what he wants. But King Jesus comes and gives all before we give him anything. In this story, King Ahasuerus uses his authority to take daughters away for his own gratification. But King Jesus uses it, used his authority to get to the cross and give himself in death for us and our salvation. Jesus Christ is a much better king. He has no rival. He has no equal. And he gives us all that we need in his sacrificial death. And his pleading for us at the right hand of the Father to this day. So let me ask you church, why would we not go all in for our would you pray with me? God in heaven, we give you praise for the gospel. We give you praise that in a world that is allied against the Son and His people, that you are still winning. And God, I ask that, that if there's any heart that is one that you are dealing with today, that, that they would be overwhelmed by your love. God, that you would give them a vision that is greater than anything this world 
deceives us with today and that you would cause them to, to pursue you wholeheartedly. God, for those who know you, but they've, but they've been concealing their identity, that, that today would be the day they resolve, I am a Jesus person no matter what it costs me. And God, for those, those who don't yet know you, God, I pray in Jesus' name that today would be the day that they would bow the knee to Jesus Christ, our King. I ask it for His glory and in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.